0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 18th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. There was a time when, as a young man of 18, you could be conscripted into a foreign war with a very real chance of dying within the year. Barry Lynn was among those working to end the draft in the 1960s and 70s. He's author of the new book, God and Government. We spoke last week. Prior to 1973, we had a... A very real possibility, if you're a young man who's able-bodied, that you would be drafted. And after that, we uh, got rid of the draft for some period of time. And now uh, I remember very distinctly in the mid-1990s uh, signing up angrily, I might add, uh, for the draft. So if you wouldn't mind, just detail some of that, some of your history in in that movement to to get rid of conscription.
1: Yeah, I was actually the uh, chairman of the board of an organization called the Committee Against Registration and the Draft, or CARD. It was a convenient little way to phrase it. Um, this was a, at a time when the possibility of a return to the draft or mandatory national service, which in my judgment is, is even worse than the draft from any kind of moral or political standpoint. Uh, This was a real possibility, and there were people, Democrats and Republicans, who wanted to go back to this, wanted to reject the idea that service was something you did if you volunteered for it, and the military was something in which you served if you volunteered to do it. And I had a lot of reasons for opposing the draft and its return. Uh, One of them constitutional, I mean to to me this is a violation of the involuntary servitude prohibition in the 13th Amendment. But moreover, I thought if you have a draft, you have an endless pool of people to draw from to say if you don't go to war this place or that place or the next place, we'll put you in jail. And notwithstanding the fact that some people have changed their mind and said, oh, yes, but look at all the opposition there was to the draft. We wish we'd see that kind of opposition to anything on college campuses. The truth is we had a draft and we were still in Vietnam for over a decade. So I'm not sure that's much of a reason. I am quite confident if we had conscription today, we'd be not just Fighting in Afghanistan, fighting in Iran, fighting in Iran. We'd be in Iran. We'd be every place that anybody, Democrat or Republican, insists we have to be there. And as a person who is, relatively speaking, not only a pacifist but also a non-interventionist, the draft, to me, just gives you all the people you could possibly need to go to all the places you shouldn't be in in the first place.
0: Now, there is some evidence that – mostly men who were in Congress uh, in the the 50s following Korea and World War II were among those most hesitant to support intervention abroad. And uh, so I, what is your assessment of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that when it came to Congress, some of the most vociferous uh, supporters of conscription were people who had managed one way or another to get out of the Vietnam War. And they didn't go, and they didn't want to go, But they certainly were happy to think of somebody else going probably they were at the time a little too young to have children themselves but they were absolute gung-ho on bringing back some form of conscription and i always thought that was uh, one of the so many i mean can we ever come up with an endless end description of hypocritical members of congress I don't think so, and they were hypocritical about this. I didn't go, they said, but, of course, other people ought to go. I was uh, ready for my Army physical. I failed it for a medical reason I didn't even know I had, and I was happy to do that. But sad that so many people that day at my local draft board induction – in the induction center for the Army were, in fact, going, and I felt – quite confident many of them didn't want to go in the first place. But I also continued after the Vietnam War was over, and I didn't go, but I, I, I spent a lot of time seeking amnesty for those who resisted the war and also to Vietnam veterans who, frankly, were shafted by some of the least Uh, constitutional methods of severance from the military. You know, you have found with a joint, your commanding officer would come to you and say, well, we can court-martial you for this, or you can just take an administrative discharge, which sounds pretty benign, but in fact it keeps you from getting the GI benefits to which you were entitled, uh, and it makes you largely unemployable. Young men didn't know that. They weren't told that. And for a long time, we had to get that system changed. And eventually, through the work of something you see so rarely, genuinely collaborative efforts by Republican Ed Brooke of Massachusetts and Democrat Jim Abareska of South Dakota, that whole military discharge system was changed for the better, making it possible to get a decent discharge, to get your benefits, and to get a job. In the late uh, – in the mid-1960s,
0: I'm, I'm reading here from uh, Regulation magazine, uh, Walter Oy was an economist who who worked uh, – did some data work on the provision of soldiers absent a draft. And it notes here that at a hearing, um, invitees to a, a a discussion included anti-draft congressman Robert Kassenmeier mm-hmm. of Wisconsin and Donald Rumsfeld of – <laughs> Illinois at the time, which is just sort of interesting. note. who were oh, some no. of the people who were were leading the charge in the '60s and '70s to to end the draft? Obviously, you have, if, as the backdrop of Vietnam, it seems that the stakes of that decision could be fairly high, and the benefits to those who uh, opposed the draft could be fairly high too.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, the real leaders at the time, ironically, were Ron Paul, who was in his uh, first few uh, sessions of Congress. Uh, who was a very clear libertarian opponent of the draft under the theory that he doesn't like if they take your tax money. If you don't like that, you certainly shouldn't like them being able to take your kid also. And a very liberal Democratic congresswoman, a good friend of mine, Pat Schroeder from Colorado. And the two of them doggedly worked this going to their respective party members during the debates over months over whether to return the draft or even whether to return, as you pointed out, registration for the draft, and did a yeoman's job. I mean, they both worked very, very hard. You'd meet with them at the end of every day. You'd take the list of members of Congress, and Ron Paul would say, I got this guy on the basis of this argument, and Pat would come in and say, I talked to this woman, and she's opposed to it for this reason. It was a glorious Idea that you could take right and left and put them together in a good cause and the right cause and do it out of principles related to both sides. Conscription never went back. I think it's literally impossible to think of it returning in America. But this registration, which was kind of a goofy idea. Because there is no one who seriously believed that if you registered for the draft and you had to, by the way, under federal law, uh, keep them notified every time you moved, some people had fun with that, like they would go from their house to their college, and then they'd write a letter to the draft board to say, "I just moved for the next two hours. I'm going to be in such and such a place at the University of Wisconsin um, but it's a federal crime not to report your change of actual address. I knew that nobody would do that because how many of us change addresses of anything except the magazines maybe that we really, really want? And I uh, used to testify in Congress about how ridiculous this presupposition was. I I was once the, the quote of the day in the New York Times for saying that I didn't believe that Everyone every young man would register for the draft if you handed out gold bricks at the post offices doing the registration
0: and that's uh, funny um, the the draft and registration for the draft are very sexist institutions there are all sorts of penalties applied to young men who that's right who, who don't register um, and well, What do you make of that in a modern era?
1: Well, there was very briefly a decision right before registration began by a federal court that said if you're going to start registering next week, uh, you have to register women as well as men. And I have to tell you that uh, there was a, a divide within the feminist community about this issue. But I think in general, the view was it's better that we're all included – among other reasons, so we can all say no. And uh, that was unfortunately a decision that was overturned just a matter of days before the draft began. So the Supreme Court of the United States eventually decided uh, in a case uh, involving the Selective Service Director at the time, Bernard Rusker, that um, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to include women in a registration or in conscription Clearly, a wrong-headed decision on the Constitution and an insult to women, uh, but one in which uh, we thought, many of us thought, that this might be the kiss of death for the whole idea of a male-only draft. Majority of Supreme Court members said, uh, "No, it's not." It, it's
0: it's strange when you are talking about Pat Schroeder and Ron Paul and uh, Donald Rumsfeld being somebody who's opposed uh, to the draft as well. Uh, Ted Kennedy was a notable supporter of the draft. So when Jimmy Carter as president uh, gets the registration instituted, what was the partisan alignment there? Because it just seems
1: very odd. I think uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, whom I was a big fan of, of Ted Kennedy's, and in my most recent book there's a little chapter about, about him, but he uh, he had mixed feelings about it because he knew that as soon as you introduced anything like a an exception, an exception to the fact that all men had to go into the draft pool, all of them had to be open to conscription, as soon as you start to create one exception, then you almost guarantee an abuse of that exception. For example, conscientious objectors, and I worked with them for a long, long time, but conscientious objectors uh, during most of the Vietnam War, first of all, they had to have a religious reason to object, which was declared unconstitutional eventually.
0: But they also... Me- meaning that narrow
1: That exception. narrowed exception because the exception had to be expanded to, to people who had a secular view, but a view in opposition to war in any form, which reached the level of a religious commitment for people who had a religious objection to war in any form, and that was a sensible decision. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court also was challenged by a young man who was a Catholic and who believed, as most Catholics do at some level, that there are just wars and there are unjust wars. The statute for conscientious objection said you had to be opposed to war in any form. So he came in and he said, wait a minute, look, from my religious background, I can make decisions. What is morally responsible? What is unjust? And they said, no, we can't do that. So it's kind of statutory construction. But when you think about it, if you're going to respect someone's religious conscience, you pretty much have to understand that those That conscience is going to be expressed along the lines of whatever religious faith or secular tradition they come from. And that ought to matter as much as somebody who said, yep, I'm a Quaker or I'm a Mennonite and we oppose war in any form. Most people don't feel that way. They don't act that way. But that for a long time was the only standard by which you could become a conscientious objector. That in writing a treatise. Uh, on the theory, uh, you were uh, why you were opposed to the war in any form, which usually required a major thick essay. If you didn't know somebody to help you write it, you probably didn't get it. If you were poor, you didn't have access to those people. You weren't in college, and you didn't get your conscientious objector status. So uh, money uh, and privilege always means something, and it does in systems of conscription, because nobody is ever going to create a system where everybody has to go. You mentioned every able bodied man. As soon as you draw an exception and you say, Well, I mean, we mean uh, if you have flat feet, you don't have to go. And then doctors come out and say, Yep, you're, this man's feet are flat. Psychiatric disorders. It was actually impossible during the years of the Vietnam draft to, to enter the military if you were gay. So you could say, well, I'm gay, and get out of it. Uh, most people, of course, at that time in the culture of that time thought that that would be the kiss of death for their employability forever and didn't do it. But some people said, all of a sudden, I feel a same-sex attraction.
0: All right. Now, in your book, you talk about other uh, instances where freedom of conscience interacts with government. Uh, Would you mind detailing one of those for us?
1: I think one of the things that happens when government gets into the religion business, first of all, it it always picks uh, winners and losers. That is to say, it always decides that something is going to be the most important religion, usually for their own reelection purposes. And therefore, they're going to give it a special blessing or give it some more money And effectively, a lot of people who would otherwise consider themselves kind of libertarian who believe that companies, for example, ought to succeed or fail on their own merits, not because of handouts from the government – feel very differently when it comes to religion. Then all of a sudden, of course, Christian charities should get money from the government. Many of us think charities exist for a purpose, that is charitable functions. That means you go to the people who like whatever you're doing and ask them for the payments. But since George Bush put into effect something called the faith-based initiative, something that President Obama has not substantially changed since that time, Now we find even more money going to people who run operations that are religious in nature, religious in character, ostensibly believing that you can draw a line between a religious function of your religious charity and a secular function of your religious charity. I think that is doggone near impossible to do, and on principle, if you have a charity, if you want to help the homeless, if the government decides that's a priority, fine. If you have a little homeless shelter run out of the Baptist church basement, I don't think the government ought to be subsidizing that at all. I worry about big religion arguably more than I worry about big government. But when the two collide or the two join in so-called partnerships, then we have the worst of both worlds. Barry
0: Lynn is Executive Director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Learn more about how the draft ended at our website, cato.org.